Hi everyone, welcome to Baby Steps Nutrition, a podcast that focuses on nutrition, health, and wellness for families of children of all ages and stages. I'm your host, Argavon Neil Forouge, a pediatric dietitian and mom of two young children. My goal is to bring you impactful information that you can apply every day in a simplified, practical form to make life easier. Now let's get into today's conversation. Dr. Camillo Ortiz is a clinical child psychologist and professor at Long Island University. He specializes in parenting, disruptive behavioral problems in children, bedtime resistance, elimination disorders, and cognitive behavior therapy for child and adult psychiatric disorders. Hi, Dr. Ortiz. I am honored to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thank you for being here. I know I have a lot of friends who are looking forward to this conversation. This is a topic, as you know, that comes up a lot. And a lot of people have even reached out to me. I also work with children. Childhood anxiety is something that I see all the time. So I'm super excited to hear what you're going to say. Okay. I hope it's helpful to your listeners. Absolutely. I first want to go back and talk about common signs and symptoms of childhood anxiety, because we know that's a word that gets thrown around a lot. But how can we as caregivers recognize it in children? So the first thing to know about anxiety is that it is not inherently a bad thing. Mm -hmm. It is a, a normal human emotion that we need to survive and our ancestors certainly needed to survive. And so an emotion displayed by a child, uh, even a pretty extreme emotion, does not mean that we have to do anything about it or make it go away. Um, Understanding that, we can think about anxiety or any emotion as having three components to it. The first is what we call the cognitive component. And so that's just what is a child thinking when they're anxious? And almost always a child is thinking about something in the future, what we call the what ifs. Um, And so if we sort of imagine, and I use this this technique with my child clients, if we sort of imagine that a child is in a comic book and they have one of those little thought bubbles next to their head, what's in there? And I will ask that of kids. And they sometimes can give me a really specific uh, example. They might say, uh, I think I'm going to fail the the math test tomorrow. Or, especially for younger kids, they might say, I'm not sure what I'm thinking. I'm just worried about something happening. And that is really the second part, uh, the worry, which is the emotion of anxiety. Now, anxiety itself, the word is an emotion, but there can be um, other aspects to the emotional experience of anxiety. There could be pessimism, Uh, worry, fear, sadness even. Um, And then there's the third component, which is the one that is typically the most important, and that's the behavioral component of anxiety. And what that almost always means is avoidance, avoidance behaviors. So when kids are anxious about anything, the natural human tendency is to avoid that thing. And that makes a ton of sense, especially in the short term. If you avoid something that you're anxious about, you are guaranteed to feel relief. 
The problem is that avoidance can cause some longer term issues. So if we take an example of uh, a child being anxious about math, for example, so they might stay home sick uh, when there's a math test and then they feel that flood of relief and uh, but then they still have to take it. Mm-hmm. And so then it kind of kicks the can down the road. And that's when we start to see avoidance spiral out of control. And that's usually when parents call me. Mm-hmm. And how much of there is a genetic component, like when you're working with a child? So I too work with a child, but I'm working with the family. Do you see some commonalities there between how the parents are when they're dealing with uncomfortable situations and their child? So this is going to sound like a bit of a cop-out, but (laughs) the research actually suggests that it's about Mm 50-50, 50% genetic and 50% environmental. And uh, obviously there are interactions between the two. Um, And what's hard about this to, to really understand is that if you see an anxious parent response and then you see an anxious child response, you might think, oh, the parent's modeling for the child. And so the child's learning from the parent. This is an environmental pathway between mm-hmm. parent and child. But the, the tricky thing is that this could also be a genetic pathway. It's just that they're both demonstrating a genetic uh, consequence in their own way. So the parent being anxious could be genetic and the child being anxious could be genetic. And there actually could be very little modeling or learning happening. The more the more time I have spent in the field of child anxiety, the more powerful uh, I see the genetic influence. And this is often in therapy pretty easily traceable. If you ask parents, tell me about um, other family members who uh, are anxious, and they can almost always draw a very clear line, sometimes even from a great grandmother all the way down to their child. Um, but you know, the reality of it is that it doesn't actually matter that much in terms of treatment because the skills that we teach are effective, no matter the cause of anxiety, whether it's mostly genetic or mostly environmental, we typically would do the same sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And would you argue that the clinical significance of anxiety has gone up in children? over the past few years. I mean, we certainly saw that with the pandemic, but I feel the pandemic just highlighted what already existed but may not have come to the surface. That's right. When we look at uh, population level trends of anxiety and its indicators, they were going up well before the pandemic. And we actually had a bit of a reprieve uh, when the pandemic started because most kids didn't have to go to school anymore. And we know that school is a huge trigger for many kids. And so we actually saw things get a little better, uh, but they have uh, um, sort of restarted the upward trend now that things are more in person. And, And when we look at what are the indicators of child anxiety, they are questions posed to children on, on, in survey research, such as um, how anxious do you feel today? Uh, but there are also more objective indicators. So um, number of kids being hospitalized for anxiety, number of kids um, uh, who are self-harming, who are even attempting suicide, 
um, number of kids who say that they are avoiding school or social events. Those are more objective measures, and those really have been going in lockstep with the more subjective measures of asking kids just how anxious do you feel today. Mm-hmm. And those are more severe levels of anxiety. And for caregivers and whoever works with children who are listening, how do they know if something is more of a stage or a phase? So in that category of normal childhood fears versus something that's escalating to something that's going to require intervention. The interesting thing is that we can't really differentiate between typical anxiety and what we call clinical levels of anxiety on the content. Mm -hmm. So kids are anxious and there are a number of developmental stages that they go through and you will see anxiety shift from one thing to another. So monsters under the bed to academic anxiety is a, is a common one. And normal, non-clinical kids have those exact same fears, just like kids we see in, in my private practice on Long Island. What is much more important is the persistence of the fear and the impairment that happens from the fear. So Uh, If kids are avoiding things that they really can't be avoiding, like birthday parties or school, um, uh, and and I don't mean that they can't be avoiding them, I mean that it's less common for them to avoid them, Mm -hmm. then that is impairing their lives more. And then that's when that attracts the the eyes of, of mental health professionals like myself. The other aspect of it is the persistence of the fear. So every child will go through stages that can last from a few weeks to a few months. If we're getting past a couple of months of the same fear that is leading to um, problems in functioning, then uh, we typically don't see those fears go away on their own. Um, and And we often see them intensify. So it's a very reasonable strategy to take a a watchful waiting approach for even a few months to see if things will will correct on their own. And many times they do. But if we're past a few months and we're really seeing no improvement, then it makes a lot of sense to reach out to someone who has expertise in child anxiety. Many therapists will... uh, will say that they do, but you really want to be asking them, you know, what percentage of your practice is focused on child anxiety? What are the research-based approaches that you use? Um, uh, and, and someone who knows what they're doing should have very good answers for those questions right away. Mm-hmm. If they tend to talk about anecdotal evidence, so say things like, in my experience, so-and-so works, as opposed to the research shows that so-and-so works. That's kind of a red flag from my perspective. Mm -hmm. And a big question that so many people are asking is, why are we seeing so many anxious children? And a big part of the work that you do is you talk about exposure therapy and the four Ds. Can you explain all of those and how they all contribute to the development of anxiety? Sure. Um, Well, so there's really like, two aspects of this. You know, we've known for a while what are some of the things that uh, we think are related to the development and maintenance of anxiety. 
but the, the, the more common question these days is why is it getting worse? Because those factors shouldn't change that much. So for, for example, genetics don't change from year to year very much. Mm -hmm. So we can't point to genetics as a reason for the increase in child anxiety. And the short answer is no one really knows why things are getting worse, but there are some pretty good uh, hypotheses. And one thing that uh, Jonathan Haidt talks about, he's the, the author of The Coddling of the American Mind, and he's done research in this area for a while, is that social media appears to be playing a causal role. Mm. Um, and, and so it's not actually technology or even cell phones in particular. Those don't seem to directly cause increases in anxiety. Um, it's, it, so, so we shouldn't write off all technology. Mm -hmm. It appears to be social media and in particular social media where there are lots of inherent comparisons that are made. So there are you know, uh, we, we all have examples of, of social media where likes and follows are not as important as, as other types of social media. Um, and so that kind of social media appears to, in young kids, lead to problems, including the incre increases that we've seen in anxiety. It's, it's not 100% of the answer. And we can't do randomized controlled trials on these things very easily. And so we don't know for sure. But the younger the teen, and in particular for young girls, social media appears to be particularly toxic. Mm -hmm. So that's one part of it. The part that I have studied is the drastic reduction in childhood independence. And we can see this trend you know, for a few decades now kind of mirroring the increase in anxiety. And what I mean by that is that Many kids these days are not allowed to do some of the things that their parents and grandparents used to be able to do without parental uh, supervision. Um, and for many reasons, which we can certainly get into, uh, I and several other researchers think that the lack of childhood independence is directly le leading to increases in childhood anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, I look back in my own childhood and I was a child of immigrant parents and certainly I had independence, but that naturally played a part because of just the home structure and whatnot. And so a lot of the conflict resolution, problem solving, I developed on my own. But you're right, with this generation of parenting, there's just a lot of fear. And again, I think it goes back to the social media impact. Like maybe it's things that we see in the news, right? We've learned to silence our own instinct. And so we're relying on external sources to provide the guidance. Would you say that it's also impacting parents as well? Yes, there's, there's clear work showing that sensationalist news makes people scared and makes mm -hmm. them overestimate the actual risks of, of many different things. Um, if we look at crime rates, for example, going back to the 60s, we are generally, despite it not feeling that way, in a safer era now than in, than in most of the last 50 years. But if you ask most parents yes. uh, that, you will get a very different answer. Um, and so 
they very rationally are trying to protect their kids by reducing exposure to the things that they consider dangerous. Um, and so what we're finding is that there are some drawbacks to that. It's certainly, again, so this is similar to what we talked about before, the short-term, long-term. If you are always around your child, you in the short term will feel better about that. They will feel safer, you will feel safer. But what we're starting to see is that there are some negative long-term consequences to what has been called helicopter parenting or mm -hmm. over-involved parenting. And you, know, you mentioned the four Ds, and this is one way to think about it, that when we're always around our kids, we deprive them of the ability to learn how to handle what I call the four Ds, and that's discomfort, distress, disappointment, and mild danger. Is, is danger is the fourth D. Um, so you know, we take something like kids playing on monkey bars. If you say no, that's too dangerous, then in the short term, you definitely are making them safer because they just can't fall from a monkey bar if you don't let them climb the monkey bar. But what happens in the long term? They never kind of learn how to judge risk. Uh, they don't work on their balance. They don't get the same you know, uh, physical exercise. And so if at some point in the future, they are in a position where they're on some monkey bars, they actually will be less safe because mm -hmm. they haven't had that practice. So this is a hard uh, balance for parents because you know, the future is, is not now. And so what's now is more salient and I want to keep my kids safe now. But I, what I talk to parents about is to make it more, more salient and clear to them that you're paying a price and your child is paying a price uh, when you are always there, um, you know, quote unquote, helping them with things. You are actually making them less capable over time. And when parents start to see the risk of that, then they become a little more open to what we call independence activities, even though there is a risk of some of them. You know, we, mm -hmm. we actually purposely will assign some homework assignments to anxious kids to do things that involve some physical risk. And it might sound like a crazy thing to do for a child psychologist to be suggesting <laughs> to parents that they put their kids at risk. But in the long term, I think I'm actually reducing risk. Yes. And then what are some healthy examples? So I know we, you said danger, so mild danger, right? So parents often think, oh my goodness, like this is just way out of my comfort zone. But there yeah. are baby steps. There are small steps that one can take. So what are some healthy examples of the four Ds, like discomfort, distress, disappointment, yeah. and mild danger? Well, so I'm a huge fan of, of um, getting kids some expertise and experience with cooking. Mm -hmm. And so cooking is inherently dangerous because we are working with sharp objects and often with heat. Yes. And so um, we meet parents where they are. And that sometimes means that a um, you know, nine-year-old or 10-year-old child can um, cook a meal from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. But it might not mean that at all. It might mean that they can cut uh, some cucumber with a pretty dull knife. That might be uh, a first step. Um, so, you know, that, that's one thing that 
practically with any family, we can uh, come up with examples where, where they can do that. Other examples have to do with separation. So uh, I recently saw a poll that more than 50%, if I'm, having, if I'm remembering this correctly, more than 50% of parents will not allow uh, a nine-year-old child uh, to go to the next aisle in a supermarket by themselves. Oh, wow. And so, uh, you know, independence activities that involve some separation can also be a reasonable place for parents to start. And so it might mean giving a child a list of three objects in the supermarket that they're in charge of getting, and then they go and get them and they meet you up at the front, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, we have uh, parents uh, give kids sticks and a sharp knife to whittle with. Um, for some reason, kids really seem to like to do that. <laughs> yes. Um, um, but it also can mean things like taking a bus or a subway by yourself. And this is actually where a lot of my work started. It, it is uh, because I, I met um, a woman named Lenore Skenazy, mm -hmm. who runs an organization called Let Grow, which has been working with schools to encourage them to allow independence and actually make homework assignments every week where the kids will do something independently. But she became fairly uh, well-known in, in the media when she let her nine-year-old son take the New York City subway by himself from Macy's in Midtown Manhattan to their home on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And uh, she wrote about it in an article and became known as uh, America's worst mom. And, and she kind of took that moniker on with pride. And so because of that, we often have kids taking public transportation by themselves. This is usually one of the more difficult independence activities that our families do, but we've had wonderful experience and kids, kids really a hundred percent of the time come home beaming from how grown up they feel. And, and the beauty of this is that there seems to be really good transfer to other areas of their lives. So we've had kids who wouldn't sleep in their own bed, but were really excited about taking a bus to school by themselves. And they came home from that experience and said, you know what, I just took a bus by myself. I think I can sleep in my own bed and mm -hmm. proceeded to do just that. And that's why I've actually turned independence into a treatment because I think that it's gonna have these fundamental effects that can address child anxieties, even if you never directly address them. So for example, if a child is afraid of the dark, the typical approach, and you asked about exposure therapy, would be to practice being in the dark. So mm -hmm. go in this closet for 30 seconds. Okay, you can do that, and now let's try it for two minutes. Okay, you can do that. Now let's uh, go in uh, another floor of your house for five minutes and so on. You basically go up in levels of difficulty. And this definitely works. The problem is that most kids don't want to do that. You know, after yeah. a long day of school, who wants to go to a therapist's office and practice being in the dark? Or mm -hmm. if you're afraid of spiders, who wants to practice watching videos of spiders or whatever the fear is? What we do with our independence treatment is we say to kids, all right, you're scared of spiders. What are some things that you would like to do independently? We're not even going to talk about spiders right now. And they might say, oh, I want to take the 
the bus to school by myself. So then we do that. And we're finding that when kids can do these independence activities, they're actually less scared of the things that they came into therapy for, even though we never directly worked on those things. Because independence tends to be almost like a sneaky exposure therapy. It makes you just feel more competent uh, about everything. Mm -hmm. One environment that I know a lot of kids struggle with is at school. So exposure therapy could be tricky because school is often long hours, right? Kids spend majority yeah. of their of their time at school. How would you address that with parents and teachers who work with anxious children? So you're you're right that it's tough. It's almost always easier to work with kids whose anxieties are at home or outside of school. But we can still do it. So for example, if we have a child who has social anxiety at school, we can still practice a lot of those skills, both using exposure therapy and using independence therapy outside of school. So if, you know, they have a fear of, uh, they might say, um, I don't know what to say to somebody. So if, if I'm in the lunchroom and I see someone I might want to talk to, I'm not sure what to say to them. And so I tend to avoid talking to people because I feel anxious. So in therapy, we might practice those conversations with the therapist, or we might have homework assignments where they might practice those conversations uh, outside of school with a sibling or a friend. And then we basically follow that same hierarchy of where we go up in level of difficulty. And then at school, we might start with, all right, let's not start with the whole conversation Let's say hello to somebody as you're walking by and you don't have to say another word, just wave to them and say hello. So once they do that, then we can sort of go up in level of difficulty. Um, if kids have test anxiety, we can often work with teachers to practice having some uh, test taking right in the therapy room. And we can work with the child almost like a live coach on how to deal with the thoughts that they're having, with their physiological arousal, with, you know, with all aspects of, of the anxiety. Mm -hmm. A parent has shared with me that her child will do independent things or try new things when there are familiar people around. But when he's in a new setting with new people that he doesn't know, he immediately shuts down. So yeah. she's wondering what those first steps would be to support him. Yeah, so this is sort of like the art part of psychotherapy where you can be really creative for those exact situations. So as a general rule, uh, what we do is, is two things. The first thing is with this child, we would create a hierarchy of difficulty. You know, what would be some mildly challenging things to do with strangers around, some moderately challenging and some really difficult things to do with strangers around. And then we could either practice those things around familiar people just to strengthen them. Or we can go to unfamiliar places with a few crutches, we might call them. So maybe you go with a friend or you go with one parent and you try some of the easier things on the hierarchy. There's almost always a sweet spot, no matter what the anxiety is, that we can pick that uh, you know someone is willing to give it a try. Um, and even if they fail, this is the beauty of exposure therapy, is 
if someone quote unquote fails, so they can't do something or they find it difficult to do something, they still often overestimate how bad it will be. And so even if they can't do the thing that you had tried to get them to do, they almost always come to the conclusion, all right, I couldn't do that, but it actually wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And that is really useful. It's, that's what we call corrective learning. That is a useful piece of information that our brains tend to overestimate how tough things will be. And if you, if you know that tendency, it can make trying new things easier. And what have you seen with people who say that they've tried exposure therapy or they've increased the level of exposure for their kid, but they're not seeing the level of uncertainty go down? Like they're almost getting backlash and they're getting more fear and more hesitation and more resistance from their child. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is one of the main reasons that I developed independence therapy is, uh, you know, I was listening to kids and they were telling me this is the last thing I want to do. Um, interestingly, you know, to face your fear directly, interestingly, things like dropout rate are not higher for exposure therapy than they are for other kinds of psychotherapy. But it's still true that the last thing a child wants to do usually is to directly face their fear. And so we have to get creative. And one of those ways is independence therapy, where we say, all right, we're not going to directly face the thing that you're afraid of. Well, let's see if we can work on you feeling generally better about yourself in terms of you know how persistent you feel you can be with challenges. And one way that we can do that is by asking you, what are some things that you'd like to do independently? And I've never met a kid who didn't have some ideas of things that they wanted to do independently. And usually it's that they're not allowed to do those things. Mm-hmm. And if we can figure out ways that are safe for them to do them, then we so far have been seeing some very nice results. Wonderful. And what about the importance of early intervention? So some people may say, is it too late for my child or how early is too early? Do we just wait it out? And then what are we looking at when we talk about the long-term effects of untreated childhood anxiety? Right. So this is an interesting question because there's a pretty big misunderstanding or, or myth among the general public about what types of treatment are effective for anxiety in children. And I get multiple calls a week from parents asking me to see their young children in therapy. And so on the one hand, I'm pleased to see that they're paying attention to their child's anxiety and they're not just avoiding it themselves. At the same time, individual therapy with young kids, and by young kids, I mean probably eight and younger, is -hmm. just not effective for for really anything, including child anxiety. And the reason is that kids at that age are not cognitively advanced enough, typically, and emotionally advanced enough to learn a technique from a therapist, say, on a Monday, and then on a Friday, when they face something that they are very anxious about and they typically avoid to remember what they talked about and to use those skills. Because there's one thing we know about anxiety is that it causes a lot of physiological changes in the body, including changes in blood flow away from the parts of the brain that are required to remember complex things, 
like skills that a therapist would teach you. So mm -hmm. getting kid, getting young kids in individual therapy for their anxiety is typically not going to help. And there's interesting research suggesting that maybe it could make things worse. What is quite useful, even at a young age, is for parents to learn how to approach their child's anxiety. So we call this parent training, which isn't my favorite word because it sort of implies that a parent needs training. Most parents are doing a great job, but there are a few things that we can teach parents that can make their approach to their kid's anxiety much more effective. So I encourage parents at a young age to see a psychologist for just a couple sessions. This is not usually a long-term thing to get a few skills, and there's just a few of them that are quite helpful when their child is really anxious. And that's gonna be far more effective than sticking their kid in weekly therapy for months and months. Mm. And that's part of the early intervention, right? So you can kind of address it early on and work on it as you go. That's right. Yeah, and Dr. Ortiz, the way I found out about you is I came across an article in the New York Times called This Simple Fix Could Help Anxious Kids. And I love that article. I know you've written other articles. Can you tell us about the key takeaway messages there? And I'll be sure to link that in the show notes for our listeners. Sure, sure. Um, so, I mean, this is really the story of how I met Lenore Scanese and how we were each approaching child anxiety from different angles. And I don't know if your listeners are old enough to remember this, but when I was a kid, there was a commercial for Reese's peanut butter cups where two people were walking on the street, not looking where they were going. One was holding chocolate and one was holding peanut butter and they <laughs> bump into each other. And the person with the chocolate gets it stuck in the peanut butter. And they both say, hey, you got your chocolate stuck in my peanut butter. You got your peanut butter stuck in my chocolate but then they taste it and it's fabulous. And this is kind of how I think about my um, relationship with Lenore is she was working on independence in schools um, and I was working on uh, anxiety in kids who are clinically anxious. And so we got the idea, well, what if we started using some of these techniques that you're using in schools with the kids I'm seeing in my private practice? And so we, uh, my doctoral student, uh, Matthew Fastman, and I developed a manual for clinicians, and you can download that for free uh, if you're a clinician uh, through, there's a link in the New York Times article, but you can also go to letgrow.org. Um, and so we wrote out a very detailed treatment manual for clinicians of how to use independence activities to treat anxiety. And then we went about testing it. And this New York Times article is about our first results, where we use this technique with four families. Um, and that's not a big number, but the way that we did it was a really intensive analysis of how they did. And these kids quickly became less anxious. Again, we, we never directly approached anything they were anxious about. We just said, what are some things you'd like to do independently? And then we tried to do one of those a day for a few weeks, and we saw some very nice results. And so the mm -hmm. article talks a little bit about uh, the trends that we already discussed here um, and how this approach could be really inexpensive, could be very easy to scale. You don't need a PhD level 
psychologists to do independence therapy. And in fact, most of the people who have downloaded my treatment manual do not have doctorates. They're master's level. Um, and it can be done pretty cheaply because it only involves a few sessions and they can be done over Zoom. So I'm, I'm really excited about this as a pretty big change in how my field tries to treat anxiety. Going away from forcing kids to face the thing they're anxious about to getting them to just be more generally independent, which we think is almost like a vaccine for independent uh, for for anxiety. It, it can prevent anxiety. We think. And it sounds like under all of that, when you're building the confidence, self sufficiency, and trusting your inner abilities, naturally the anxiety will decrease. Exactly. Exactly. Amazing. Um, what are you seeing in terms of emerging trends, research findings, in the field of child psychology? I mean, not a ton. It's really like a lot of the same stuff. You know, I'm going to a conference next week of the, the, it's the biggest conference of child psychologists probably in the world. And I generally have been seeing the same kind of research for the last 10 or 20 years, which is some version of, we know that exposure therapy works, but why don't people use it and can we get them to use it? And, you know, there's lots of interesting approaches to get more clinicians to use exposure therapy. Interestingly, many clinicians themselves are kind of scared to use exposure therapy, but it hasn't really moved the needle very much. And in fact, as you mentioned earlier, we are seeing rates of anxiety continue to climb. So we're, we're not, we're not, you know, fixing this problem with enough urgency or with enough creativity. And so, you know, I don't know how, how far independence therapy will take us, but it's certainly a different approach that I think has a ton of um, potential. And so I would encourage, you know, if there are any other researchers listening to this podcast, to try to think of some innovations, we just have we we have not had enough innovations in my field, with uh, and to you know really think outside the box for treating child anxiety because this problem is likely to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, and I love that you keep going back to the word creative. I think that's what really stimulates conversations, excitement, optimism. And you're yeah. right, like especially when you work with kids, you have to be creative in order to be able to make that connection. So it's such a valuable skill, but something that I think, unfortunately, a lot of people overlook. So we got we to gotta bring that back. And related to that, therapy needs to be fun or kids yes. are not going to want to do it. And that's yes. one thing that I think independence therapy really does a great job at. It's, you know, so, so you went on the train last week. Tell me about that. What happened? And uh, what did you learn from it? And was anything scary was anything fun and kids faces kind of light up about it and there are so many independence activities that are really you know creative um you know i had i had a little girl uh start a business by herself mm -hmm. which blew me away um i had another little girl paint one wall of her room her favorite color all by herself and she was so excited about doing that now you know that man might not work for every family but that's certainly more fun than you're scared of spiders. Let's go 
play with spiders. Yes. Um, Dr. Ortiz, as a seasoned child psychologist, but as a parent yourself, what have been your own aha moments? With my own kids? Yes. Um, huh. I was not expecting that question. No, That's a great I love question. this question for you. <laughs> Let me think about that. Um, my my kids uh, my kids are really different from each other. Uh, so I have a pretty fearless child, and then I have a child who's more timid about new situations. Um, and um, you know, a, a lot of what I put into independence therapy comes from my experience with my own kids. And I have a really vivid memory of my son, who's the more timid one, um, going to a playground that we have here in, in New York City uh, called The Yard. And this is a, a fantastic playground, and it is part of a growing trend, which I'm very happy to see. It's what's called a junkyard playground. And no adults are allowed inside this playground and it's full of all kinds of stuff you would find in a junkyard and kids are encouraged to saw two by fours and to nail things into wood and to do all kinds so there's inherent danger in this playground there are a few workers inside and they are instructed to only intervene if someone is about to injure themselves but kids are really good about judging danger, actually. I remember there was a, a mom who was nervously looking over the fence and her <laughs> son was sawing a two by four on his lap and she's yelling, you're going to cut your leg off. And he's, yeah. he goes, mom, I know where to stop. And of course he stopped. He did not cut his leg off. Um, but I remember my son, who again tends to be quite timid, had on his own created two teams of kids he did not know. He did not know these kids when he showed up at the yard. And they were having, quote unquote, a war where they were trying to build the best structure on each side. And I was telling him, you know, it, it's time for us to go home. And he goes, Dad, I can't leave. We're in the middle of our war. And I just, I couldn't believe my eyes because this is really different than how he normally is. And the, the breathless excitement of these interactions he was having with strangers um, said everything to me about, you know, had I been in there with him, mm -hmm. there's no way it would have been a better experience. And so then I started thinking, well, what if taking parents a little bit out of the equation yes. might actually be a good thing for kids. And it could be a good thing for parents because most parents are exhausted and overworked and feel guilty and stressed that they're not doing enough. What if we had this Goldilocks solution where doing less could actually be good for kids and parents? Yes. And kids relate more to one another than they could to any adult and vice versa. So I think that's the beauty of seeing other kids saying, oh, I'm not alone. And if it's not scary for this person, it can't be scary for me. Or it can be scary for me, but I'm willing to try it anyway, right. which right. is really the goal. We never try really to get kids to be less afraid of things. We say, okay, you're afraid of this. Do we still want to do it anyway? Mm -hmm. And that is a pretty big 
shift in perspective. Oh, I don't have to avoid everything I'm afraid of. I actually can sometimes purposely do some things I'm afraid of. I love that. And Dr. Ortiz, where can our listeners find out more about you? So my website is just my name. So it's the letters DR like doctor and CamiloOrtiz.com. So that's C-A-M as in Mary, I-L-O. Camilo is my first name. Ortiz is my last name, O-R-T-I-Z. My Twitter is at Dr. Camilo Ortiz. Same thing, D-R, Camilo Ortiz. And um, I think those are the best two places. Wonderful. And I will include everything that you mentioned in the episode, in the episode show notes, because so many valuable information there. Um, Dr. Ortiz, I want to thank you so much for being here. You have made significant contributions to our understanding of mental health and well-being. Um, it, It just doesn't get better than you and your work. So thank you so much. That's very kind. Thank you so much for saying that. And it really comes down to improving the caregiver-child relationship and fostering a child's emotional, social, and cognitive development. And I know that's something every caregiver, anyone who works with children in any capacity can benefit from, not to mention the child who will eventually be an adult. So thank you so much again. Sure, anytime. And to the listeners, thank you as always for tuning in. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast with your host, Argavan Neoforush. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into all the tips and tricks you and your family can use to make daily life a little easier. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review, share with others, and follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast. As always, you can head over to babystepsnutrition.com to sign up for our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. See you next time. Tune in. Feel great.